Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful to you for the privilege of the study of your holy scriptures this morning. We thank you, God, for the faithful men of the Word of God who followed the direction of the Holy Spirit and wrote the things that you gave them to write. We thank you, God, for the Holy Spirit who uh, interprets the Word for us and, and to us and, uh, and applies it to us. And we pray that as we, we study the Word this morning, that, that our teacher would be you, the Holy Spirit, that our hearts may be open, that we may learn, and that we may also, by your grace, may be enabled to live out in our lives the things that we have come to know in our minds and in our hearts. We thank you, O Lord, and, and pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, you don't have to, to look very long into the headlines of the news to conclude that the world in which we live seems to be out of control in some ways. I mean, even as I, we prayed today for, for those with the coronavirus, we hear stories of over 85,000 people who have been infected by that and, and over 2,900 people dead. Almost 3,000 people have died worldwide as a result of that. Not only is there there's sickness, but we even see hostility as well as there's further attacks and murders by terrorists towards Christians in Africa and other parts of the world. And I think sometimes we hear those things, you know, in the headlines and, and it just maybe sometimes just goes right over our heads. And we don't even really think about the reality that our brothers and sisters in Christ are burying the bodies of their dead loved ones simply because they were disciples of Jesus Christ. And then we read sometimes of hurricanes that leave entire countries devastated and many people, thousands of people homeless because of the winds and the rains of the storm. And, and those are the things that we read in the headlines. And then there's all the other things that we deal with in our lives that really never make it into the headlines a family simply working hard to try to make ends meet and how difficult that that, that can be or or um, the hypersexuality and gender fluidity that is bombarding us in our culture and the questions even in our own minds of, of how do I respond to that or, or how do I also help my kids to navigate through all of this? Especially as we hear even more and more Christian kids saying, so what's wrong with all of this? And why, why is this wrong? And how should we respond? And even seeing some kids wander from the faith. And not just because of those issues, but, but other reasons as well. Leaving the church. And then even some adults struggling in their faith as well. And for those of us maybe that are older, maybe it's not just us, but for those of us that are older, I think sometimes we just look back at our country, we look back at the world in which we live and we think, you know, is this the same place, the same world, the same country that I grew up in? It just seems so different than it was when, when I was younger and maybe my family was younger. And as we feel more and more out of control of our lives, you know, what is it that we need to hear? What is it that we need to know? 
what is it that we need to believe? And the writer of Hebrews seeks to pastorally minister to people like that. Now, they may not be facing all those issues that, that I mentioned earlier, but they were struggling in their faith. They were people who had suffered for their faith, and they had suffered in ways that many of us in this room never have suffered before. They were put in prison. They had had their properties taken away from them. And there was a great cost to them that, that challenged them to, to question their faith. And, and the writer of Hebrews continues to challenge their idols and the things that they're placing their, their hearts in. And I won't spend a lot of time on this because, you know, we've already talked about how the Jews were tempted to think more highly of angels than they probably ought to. I mean, they had, a, I think, a, a much more developed doctrine of, of angels than most of us do. I mean, we don't, I think, oftentimes think a whole lot of angels. But in verse 5, you could tell that it was something that was still on their minds that the writer addresses. He says, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. And, and for these Jews, there was really a, a common belief at the time that, that God had entrusted the present world to the oversight of angels. If you would, turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 32. Deuteronomy 32, verse 8. which would have been in the Bible of these Jewish believers. We read, When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. Now, what this is a reference to is, is that when God you know, divided up the nations. Uh, he divided up mankind and he sort of fixed borders for the different nations, for the different people. And it says, according to the number of the sons of God. But if you read the Septuagint, it actually says, according to the angels of God. And, and the reading from the Septuagint implies that the, the governance of the various nations has been parceled out amongst the corresponding number of angelic powers. And, and you see hints of this in, in the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 10, verse 20, we read of the angelic powers of Persia or Greece, uh, while Michael, the angel Michael, is the great prince and champion of the people of Israel. Uh, we see that in, in Daniel chapter 10, verse 21, and 12, verse 1. And then in a number of scriptures, some of the angelic um, governments or governors are portrayed as hostile principalities and powers. And we saw that in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. So as these Jews would have heard that, they could have very easily thought that, well, the angels are now ruling over this present world. Who's going to rule over the world to, to come? And, and they had a temptation to think it was these angels because they saw angels as very powerful beings, of which they actually were. But the, the point I want us to see as we think about this, brothers and sisters, is like these Hebrews, when our lives are out of control, when they're out of our control, you know, we may have a number of reactions to life. We may become fearful. Some of us may f uh, worry when, when things are out of our control. Others of us may uh, dwell upon those things and become depressed. 
Others of us may take the opposite effect and we may seek to fix everything in this life. But one thing is certain, that we typically turn to that which we think has strength or power or authority. And, and we've seen that in the life of Christians. We've seen that in the life of the church. I mean, even for decades now, the, the church, uh, the conservative right, has looked to politicians oftentimes and policies in our government to try to make things better for the church rather than always trusting on Jesus Christ. You know, and as we face medical issues and or, or maybe uh, relational issues in our, our family, you know, maybe struggles in our marriage or troubles with our kids, we oftentimes will turn to the quote unquote experts for people who have the know, people who have the, the power and the authority to tell us what's right. For some of us, and I know, I know people uh, like this as well, who they sort of see themselves as the authority. They're like, okay, I can fix this. I can do this. If I just set my mind to it, I can figure this out. But, but oftentimes we look to something or someone else to fix what, what is out of control. And so like the, the Christians that the writer of this letter is writing to, we, we need to know, though, where to look for, for strength and power and authority. And, and, and it, even as we uh, look at verse 5, we see that the writer tells these Christians that angels are not it. That that's not truly where their rule and their authority is going to come from. So who is it that God has subjected the world to come? And, and he really answers that question uh, about the proper rule of the world to come in, in a very familiar psalm. Uh, actually, this is Psalm 8. And, and we learn that God, believe it or not, has ordained that the world would be ruled by man. And I want us to look at this psalm today, and particularly as as a writer of Hebrews lays it out for us today. And and, and I want you to notice that he starts out in verse 6 of Hebrews 2 by saying it's been testified somewhere. Now, you might read that and you think, what, the guy forgot? He doesn't know where he's getting this from Scripture? I mean, and, you know, sometimes we will do that. We'll say, you know, I I know in the New Testament it says, or or I remember somewhere it says this or it says that. But but that's not really where he's coming from. I mean, for him to forget that this is Psalm 8 would be like if I said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And I sort of went through that verse and and, and I'd say, where is that found? And even the kids could say, it's John 3.16, right? Or what if I quoted Romans 8, 28 through 30, you know, or Philippians chapter 2, or these very familiar passages. You go, I, I know where that's at. I, I, you know, we just talk about that so much. And, and it would have been the case here. So it wasn't that the writer didn't know. As a matter of fact, what you're going to notice as we go through the book of Hebrews is that the writer rarely ever says, or I don't think he ever says, actually, he doesn't ever refer to the human authors, He doesn't ever say David wrote this or Moses wrote this or Paul said this or, you know, there's never any reference to a human author because he wants his hearers to understand that this is the word of God. Because when we are going through the times of difficulty, the times of uncertainty and the difficulties in our life and when we are feeling out of control, we don't need to hear the word of man. We need the word of God. And so the writer wants them to understand. And so he says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 6, What is man that you were mindful of him? Or the son of man 
that you care for him. Now, you can just imagine David, who wrote this psalm, maybe as a young shepherd spending his night out, and he's watching his sheep, and he's gazing into the vastness of the, the stars and the sky above, and, and, and he sees the magnificence of, of God's creation. And, and he said, what is man, God, that you are even mindful of him, or the son of man that you, you care for him? And man is, is nothing compared to the expanse of space and the majesty of the stars and the, the planets. Now, this is in a, a, a sense of false humility on David's part to, to write this. It, it is the right way to think of man in relation to the created order. To, to ask the question, why does God even think of mankind at all? Why does God even care about us? And the eighth psalm really is just sort of a poem or a commentary about the creation of the world. Well, he goes on and he says in Hebrews 2, 7 and 8, he says, You made him, that is man, a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under him. And, and what we see in this psalm is, is that God has ordained a special role for man in the created order. Even though mankind doesn't seem significant in light of the grandeur of all of creation, God chose to set mankind to rule over the world. I mean, even, you know, here he is lower than the angels. And, and you know, the angels can be in the heavenly realms. They can be on the earthly realms. Man can't do that. So he is lower than that. But, but it is a mystery that God thinks or cares for humanity at all. But he does. Now, for, for most people today, especially for sinful man, for those that, that don't know the redeeming love of the Lord Jesus Christ, our problem is not that we think too much of ourselves, you know? And maybe even for many Christians, that's not a struggle. We actually struggle the opposite way. We actually think too highly of ourselves. Um, but but it, it is amazing to consider that God's plan for mankind from the very beginning was is that he would rule over the created order. And, and if we, if we uh, take Psalm 8 and we tie it together, we see it really addresses what God revealed to us in Genesis chapter 1. So look at Genesis 1, verse 26. Genesis 1, 26. And I know it's a, a very familiar passage, but just, just listen carefully to God's word. And what he, what he reveals to us. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth. And, and listen to what he, does, what he says. And he said, And subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You see, in, in this passage, God commissioned mankind to rule over the animals of the sea and of the air. And this was God's intent 
from the beginning. So here God is the one who is the creator and then he gives to man as his vice regent, as the one in authority under him, the authority to, to uh, oversee all of creation. And, and we see in Genesis um, an example of this with Adam naming all of the animals. Now, this wasn't just a task that God delegated to Adam because he didn't want to have to do that. And so he gave it to Adam. Instead, it re really reveals Adam's superiority and his rightful rule over all the things that he named. And in fact, if you look back at Hebrews um, chapter 2, verse 8, uh, we sort of see the meaning of that. He says, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. And, and so the psalmist knows uh, all this, yet he adds that while man is above all the living things, that he still remains a little lower than the angels. So, so mankind has a place in the created order, and that's a place of, of a wonderful position, um, but it's still just below those who serve around the throne of God. And yet, nevertheless, the, the dignity given to man is just truly amazing. But if you continue on in, in verse 8, you'll see that the writer of Hebrews says, At present, we don't yet see everything in subjection to him. Now, when, when he talks about subjection, you know, he's talking about the idea of placing one in authority under another. And, and he's still thinking of man and realizes, as we all do, that mankind failed, right? When God placed him as his vice regent to rule over everything in the garden, you know, man was intended for glory and for rule. But we know what happened that man, Adam and Eve, sinned and rebelled against God. Mankind fell from that, that kingship that was assigned to him in the garden. And he, and he fell hard. I mean, the scriptures describes uh, now the mentality of mankind. And instead of one whom God as creator gave him authority and delegated him to oversee God's creation and him gladly doing so in service to God. Instead, we read these words about mankind. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. You see, because mankind lost his kingdom and his crown, we don't see the earth being subject to man. Actually, not only do we not rule this world, but it seems oftentimes to rule us, does it not? Uh, with all of our modern technology, we, we, are, we can constantly fight against the earth uh, and for our survival, whether it be against the weather, whether it be against animals, whether it be against the weeds, you know, of the garden. But because Adam and Eve sinned against God, God cursed the ground and he ejected mankind from the garden. And so no matter how superior we think of ourselves and how scientifically advanced that we are, we still, believe it or not, are at the mercy of a single-celled virus that can kill millions of us in a single season. 
You know, we, we wrestle with things as, as simple as the common cold and, and flu and the loss of glory and the rule occurred in the garden and we still suffer the effects of that. And that's the reality that we live in every day. You know, there is a sense in which we are created in God's image and we are created to rule and yet we have given ourselves over to sin that seeks to master us, as we read in Genesis 4, 7. And it is our sin that leads us to think that we know how things ought to be ruled and what that rule ought to look like in our everyday lives. And that's oftentimes how we approach God as those who have lost that rule, but yet, you know, seek to think that we know so much how that ought to be done. But the author um, writes that, we do not, at this present time, see everything in subjection to man. But then he goes on in verse 9, and he says, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by, grace, by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. You see, the writer of, uh, teaches us that the historical reality of this psalm really is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It might have been written originally in Psalm 8 to sort of point back to creation. I think it was also written in Psalm 8 to point ahead to the Messiah. But what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that's correct. That Jesus is the one that's the fulfillment of that. Now, how can man fulfill his intended role of subduing the earth and reigning with dominion over creation? I mean, no angel can do that. And really, no ordinary man can do that because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But it's only the God-man who accomplishes this. It is Christ in all things. Uh, it is in Christ where all things have been put in subjection under him, that he is the one that rules. And the author wants us to realize that the Son of God highlighted in the first chapter, as we, and, and I would just encourage you to read it, whenever you're struggling this week, just open your Bibles and he read Hebrews 1 and think about who your Lord is, who Jesus is, and see him in all his magnificent glory. But it is he who became a man and walked among us and he suffered and he died, only to be raised and exalted once again to the right hand of the Father. As we read in Hebrews chapter 1, as the writer was quoting from Psalm 110. And, and the author's point in all this is to realize that Christ's humanity makes it possible for Christ to fulfill the original intent of Psalm 8. That he, as he came as the God-man, as he came as human, that Christ joined us in our frailty. He came to identify with us as, as humanity. And in Hebrews 2.9 we read that Jesus Christ became a man. In other words, he was made a little lower than the angels for a while. That Christ came incarnate. He came in human flesh. Flesh and blood like you and I. Now think about that. Pause just a moment. Okay? And, and consider how deep was the humiliation of the Son of God. I think we hear that about Christ's incarnation and it does not strike us. Um, think, if you would, maybe to a time in your life where you were humiliated. I mean, humiliated. 
And I don't have to tell you when that happened. That is probably an event that plays over in your mind again and again and again and again. And you may be my age, and it may have happened when you were a little, little, little kid, but it has stuck with you all these years because when we are humiliated, it sticks with us. Okay, now God is not humiliated, you know, in in that sense, but still, nonetheless, you know, consider the one who became man and that he was God. And let me just read to you from the psalm, just a, a, a brief description of God from Psalm 113, beginning with verse 4. Psalm 113, verse 4. It says, the Lord, it's the name Yahweh, it's the covenant God, is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Okay, so, so God's glory is, a, is above the heavens. Okay, who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth. You know, we think God is up a little bit. We think he's up in heaven a little bit. But he looks far down. He is so highly exalted. He looks far down upon the heavens and the earth. The Lord is totally self-contained, needing no one and nothing outside of himself. But it is God, Jesus, who became man. But he came to redeem fallen humanity who had forfeited his reign in the garden. And so the Son of God took upon himself human nature to save sinful creatures. But then look at verse 9. It, is, it says, uh, the writer calls him Jesus. Now that should strike you because up to this point in time he's been referred to as the son of God or son of man. This is the first time he uses the word Jesus. And the word Jesus means he saves or, or savior. And so we see that he came to make atonement for his people. And, and the son endured, as it says in verse 9, the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God he might taste death. For everyone. Now, now notice that the writer, whenever, as we go through the book of Hebrews, you can make note of this. Whenever he refers to death, he always includes the word suffer or, or suffering when he speaks of the death of Christ in Hebrews. And that should take us back to the cross. You know, I think we have loved ones who have died. Uh, all of us have probably had someone in our life who's died or you've known of someone. And, and, and we talk about how they passed peacefully. You know, they died, but you know what? They didn't suffer. But then we know others, and we have other relatives maybe, who went through great difficulty. Maybe they struggled with cancer, and their, their illness was prolonged, and their suffering was great. But Christ's suffering was, was even greater because his was the atrocious death upon the cross. And, and he suffered for us to pay that penalty. And it said that he tastes death. Now, the problem with us is we take our meaning of words and we add it on biblical meanings, uh, biblical words. And so we take that word taste and we think, well, it just means a sip. You know, if I say, here, take a taste of this, of my Coke. You know, you'll take a little bit and you may just take a little bit of sip of it. But that's not really what the word means here in the Greek. It means that he experienced death, but he experienced it in its fullness. And so Jesus experienced the wages of sin by bearing the infinite displeasure and wrath of God. The, the Son of God became man, 
not just to be an example for us, to be, to be the substitute for and uh, our, our atonement. And, and Jesus became the substitute, it says, for everyone. Now, now this, I think oftentimes people will take this and say, see, Jesus died for every single person. This is talking about universal atonement. Well, first, that would contradict the plain teaching of Scripture because Christ was a real substitute for those who died. He actually accomplished salvation. It wasn't just the possibility of us being atoned, but he actually saved us. The second thing that the term everyone it really, in one sense, doesn't prove anything because it's used in a limited sense. Just like the word all sometimes in Scripture is used in a very limited sense. Turn to Colossians chapter 1, if you would. Paul is writing to the, the Colossian church and, and he's encouraging them in his faith and he's talking about his work amongst them. And in Colossians 1.28, Paul says, Him, that is Jesus, we proclaim, warning everyone... And teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Now, I don't know anyone who would read these verses and think that Paul had warned and taught every single person who was alive. He was talking about everyone in a certain group. So that we got to be careful not to put too much weight on words and bring our ideas to those. But also, if you turn back to Hebrews chapter 2... Even the context uh, describes clearly the meaning of the word for, for everyone for whom he tasted death. In verse 10, they are described as the many sons whom Christ brings to glory. And, and then in verse 11, there, there are, these people are in turn the sanctified and, and the brothers. In, in verse 13, they are the children that God has given to Christ. And, and then uh, those delivered from the bondage of death, we read in verse 15. So, so there's nothing in the context to suggest a universal atonement. Everything in the context actually expresses quite the opposite. It's that particular, that definite uh, uh, atonement, uh, the nature of that atonement. So... He died for everyone, but it goes on to say, in fact, it was his death that Jesus would be crowned with glory and honor. That glory and honor that man uh, lost as, as he fell into sin, we see that Christ gained through his death. And therefore, to be exalted to the highest place so that all his enemies would be placed under his feet and all things would be subjected to him. Uh, and, and this could not occur unless Jesus, the one who was highly exalted, had first humbled himself. And so, in doing so, the last Adam uh, regained what the first Adam had lost. The, the God-man, Jesus, rules and reigns over all. Not just the world, but over all creation. And, and brothers and sisters, I think we need to remember that Christ rules over his church. He ro rules over his people. And that, that means that we are in subjection to him. And that is a good thing. You know, we oftentimes don't like to be under the authority of other people because we don't want to be told what to do. But the king that, that rules over us is a gracious king. He is a benevolent king. 
And, and we need to remember that as, as we come to the text today, and especially as we go through the challenges and the difficulties of our life, and, and especially as we don't understand always why the world is out of control and why things are happening the way that they are. You see, the author wants to assure the readers that, that you know, even as you look at, at Psalm 10, it, it talks about how, you know, I talked about how mankind no longer rules over creation, that we don't see this rule. But that's also true of Christ as well. That, that Christ, um, we, we do not experience the reality of his rule yet by sight. We do so by faith. Um, and so we can be assured that Christ really is in control and we can trust by faith that that is true, that the full subjection of all things uh, while it doesn't occur now, he still rules nonetheless. But one day in the future, we will see that by sight. As a matter of fact, we read in Philippians 2 that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And really, this passage is a parallel to, to Philippians 2. And, and, and as believers, we are encouraged, along with the original listeners to the book of Hebrews, to realize the things are not always what they seem. Christ does rule, and the world to come is subject to him. Not to angels, not to any other powerful being, but it is subject to him. And, and if we understand that, and we really take that to heart, and we look at our own lives, and we say, Jesus, that means you're, I'm subject to you. That I turn my heart over to you. That I will follow you. That I will trust you, Jesus even when I don't understand, that changes how we view our surroundings and how we view our circumstances. And, and where we might be tempted to be gloomy and pessimistic, despondent, maybe even depressed and discouraged, you know, when we realize that Christ reigns and he reigns well, and when we are tempted to think that we know how God ought to rule, but instead we trust that he will rule as well, um, then we can rest in him. You know, bad things will still happen. And I think as, as, even as believers, we will be confused sometimes by God's providence. We won't always understand why he allows things to happen the way that they do. And we may have no idea why things um, play out the way that they do. But the author of Hebrews um, honestly, is not going to clear that up for us, at least not now. He, he has something of greater importance that he wants to tell us. However, we, we can know that even when it looks like Christ is not in control, that our minds, eyes are being deceived, that we dare not say that God's intended purpose for man has failed because Christ, through his death and through his resurrection, has become the second Adam and he does rule over everything. And it's true that we don't see everything in subjection to Jesus right now. However, we do see something. We see something greater. And I would suggest to you we see someone greater, the Lord Jesus, who rules over all. And there may be those who are here today and need a king in their life. Now, that may not be what you're thinking right now. You may be thinking, I just need to be fixed. I just need these things that are out of control to be taken in control. But really what you need is the, a loving king. You need a person of strength, a person of power and authority to, to turn to 
when your life is out of control. And I want you to know today, brothers and sisters, that is your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He calls you to come to Him and to rest in Him and by faith to pray and to pour your burdens out to Him and He will hear you and you can rest in Him. But there may be also be those who are here today who are lost and undone, a person who needs a Savior King who can forgive their sins and lovingly rule over them. You know, my prayer today is this, and I'll close with this. I just pray that the Lord would dethrone the idols of our lives and enable us by faith to bow before Him now and to depend upon Him alone for salvation and to be the ruler over our hearts and to master us that we might rest in Him. Amen? Let's bow our heads as we meditate upon this word this morning. God, we know that to none of the angels did did the Father say, sit at my right hand. Only to you, Lord Jesus, did he say this. And we know that today that you sit there and you rule over all things. And I think oftentimes, Lord Jesus, we, we sort of approach verses like that saying, yeah, Jesus, rule over everything else in this life for my sake and my benefit rather than understanding what we need most is for you to rule over our hearts as well. And so I pray that we would come to you, Lord Jesus, to look to you for hope. And I pray for those that are here today, especially, Lord, for those that are broken. God, for those that are weary. Lord, for those that just are on the edge and just seem to have no ability even to go forward. Well, I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would open their eyes, that they could behold the glory and the greatness of who you are as God and know that you are calling all to you to come and to find rest, to sit under your rule, to be protected, Lord, even from the idols that we so readily want to cling on to but cause us so much harm. Lord Jesus, help us to find our satisfaction in you and in you alone. We thank you, Lord, and pray this in your name. Amen.